hello hello and welcome to the cinema syndicate podcast the best and most exciting most fun hot take movie review show on the internet spanning its hot take tentacles from the west coast to the east coast i'm matthew scott and as always i'm joined by my co-host one mr preston barnes out in oakland california how you doing preston right on fellas doing well and we got mr budge husky in washington dc how you doing budge i'm doing well matthew how's the gang (laughs) Great. And today we have a special guest. He's one of Mr. Budge Husky's special friends. Special friends makes it sound really creepy. <laughs> but uh, Budge, why don't you introduce your friend just today? Sure. We've got an uh, old friend of mine here on the pod. Um, follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Kibbles and Fritz. Uh, he is a one-time contestant of Sports Jeopardy. Um, I will let the, uh, I'll let the listener figure out how that ended. And uh, also <laughs> former editor for his college newspaper, sports editor for his college newspaper, Wahoo. I prefer the term uh, podium finisher. On <laughs> but, uh, thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Big fan of the pod. Did yeah. You ever, did you ever do like daily? De- well, we'll just explain the Jeopardy experience to us. Like, for you, you were on the show. It was specifically sports Jeopardy. Did you ever get a daily double and risk everything, or what happened? I got a daily double. Uh, I didn't have the cojones to risk everything, <laughs> and it was a good thing because I got it wrong. Um, <laughs> but yeah, not to not to delve too deeply into the sports Jeopardy rabbit hole, but uh, basically, once you know the, the application, the, the test is hard. But once and once you get on. Pretty much everybody knows the answer to 90% of the questions, and it is just all buzzer. Oh, and uh, all buzzer. I eventually kind of figured out the buzzer, but it's it's tough. Do it's, they I give remember. you like a practice? Do they let no, you buzzer they, practice? No, they just throw you in. And I and I went on against a guy who ended up winning like 10 straight games. So it was just, it was a bloodbath. But. Yeah, I remember you telling me that like buzzer sensitivity when you came back, you were like, that's that was like the biggest learning curve. That's like, pretty much it. You I mean, don't know anything about that that you're like lost. Well, that seems really unfair that they just throw you to the wolves and they don't let you actually practice the buzzer thing at all. Because I, I have read that too. Like some of those like champions, they always talk about sort of like hitting it like right at the perfect time or whatever, but you don't really know until you actually hear someone talk about it or whatever. I thought, I thought they would let you sort of at least have one little dry run, as they say, so you don't have a mess on they, your they, do t- they tell you to time it, but yeah, it's hearing it and actually doing it up on stage um, is the two different things entirely, obviously. <sighs> All right, so what we're going to do today, we're going to review Judas and the Black Messiah, the recent uh, Oscar buzz worthy movie that's come out on HBO Max, uh, directed by Shaka King and starring uh, Daniel, is it Kulia? 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 I don't really know how to say his name. But Kaluuya, yeah. I think. Um, obviously, it's a biopic about Fred Hampton and his time in the Black Panther Party in Chicago, Illinois. All right, so we're going to do our marquee picks. And since this is about sort of civil rights and activism, we are going to do our favorite activists and tv and movie history so we always like to be pretty comedic and liberal with our interpretation of that so we're gonna let uh fritz or kibbles start it off who are your top three favorite activists all right so the first my number three um is actually a real person and uh you might know him from two different movies that bizarrely came out within a year of each other um and bizarrely because they're about a distance runner named steve prefontaine of uh, Fontaine fame. Uh, and the reason I love Pre is that in addition to being an Olympic distance runner and kind of this, this cult icon uh, in the running world, I'm a big, I never had eye-hand coordination, so I'm a big distance runner. Um, Prefontaine was notorious slash celebrated for hating the AAU. 
And uh, pretty much from the time he graduated Oregon, he butted heads with the AAU. And, um, you know, back in the 70s, you had to remain an amateur to compete in the Olympics. Um, so he was basically living on food stamps while being one of the, uh, being one of the best athletes in the world. Uh, and, you know, about, you know, kind of in my job and, and a big interest of mine has been kind of the debate around amateurism and NCAA compensation. Uh, and, and Pre was definitely a, an early pioneer in, in that field. Um, so in, in what was the AAU sort of the precursor to the NCAA? I mean, AAU still exists, yes, okay. but it's, you know, it, kind of the way it went, I know I'm not a full expert on the Prefontaine thing, but kind of the way it worked back then was once you graduated from the NCAA, if you wanted to compete mm. in track and field, you had to remain an amateur. And he basically, you know, he graduated and he started taking money from Nike and, and free shoes and they nailed him. And they were like, you do that again, we're going to bar you from competing. Uh, and so he basically just told him to eat shit for the rest of his, <laughs> uh, which is pretty great. I mean, he, and he did it when pretty much no one else in the field, you know, had the, had the guts to stand up to him. So it's, uh, well, I mean, I guess it's a good thing too, because I think to be a long distance runner, most of the ones I see are quite thin and skinny. And so if you were living on <laughs> berries, it probably, you know, it was, that's true. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair, help. but, uh, you know, if, if you were doing the same thing, mm. 50 years later, he would be, he'd be living pretty well. Um, but the reason distance runners in America live well now is because of Pree. So shouts out to Pree. Well, it's funny Please. you say this. I just saw an article today about a guy who's a professional uh, disc golf player and signed a $10 million endorsement deal. So Prefontaine probably in this day and age would have been way making a lot more money than some like living on food stamps. But let's move on to your number two, Mr. Kibbles. Now my number two, uh, a feminist icon. It's the Imperator Furiosa from Mad Max. <laughs> uh, ah. Now look, look, she's living in a desolate wasteland. Uh, her boss is a dick. <laughs> he's got five wives that he, he basically forces to breed. Uh, and Furiosa is badass. But what I what I like about her as an activist is that she kind of, you know, she obviously hated Immortan Joe and she hated the guy, but she she played it she played the slow game for a while. She acted like she was, she was loyal to him all the while hatching her plan. Yeah. She took it down from within. Exactly. Exactly. And if she had been a little, you know, if she had lost her temper or lost it a little bit, uh, she could have screwed things up, but by playing the slow game and getting them out there and meeting up with, uh, with Max and, you know, just killing it and, and just being a badass, you know, she was, she was actually, she was able to affect real change and, weird desert thunderdome world of post-apocalyptic australia oh it is supposed to be australia isn't it yeah is it actually set in australia or is it just made by I think, australian filmmakers i think the original one was yeah i think the original yeah, one yeah, was with I, I think, right i guess the implication is that it's all australia because it's mm -hmm. all desert and... And, and i guess she, Charlize theron is south african but tom hardy is english so that might make some sense by the way, and just like speaking in terms of like we're dealing with COVID and theaters really aren't open or whatever, but I saw that movie in IMAX and I think that's probably one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. Just the music and just the huge, huge screen, those stunts, the loud, yeah. I mean, it really, really was something. Sometimes I, I sort of wonder in my head if I really ever need to go back, but movies like that really make you love the movies. I love, love Mad Max Fury Road. It was yeah. fantastic. It's and, on, I was just going to say on HBO Max now and I think I'm 
I'd fire it up soon. Shout out. There we go. I think I remember someone saying like David Fincher or whatever was talking about like filmmaking and stuff like that. And someone asked him a question, like what's one movie or something that you sort of really admire? And he said Mad Max Fury Road because he wondered how they made that movie without anybody dying. Because all like a, a lot of it is not CGI. That's all sort of practical stunts and stuff like that. And it's just amazing that they were able to not only do those stunts, but have like all those cars going in the desert at one time and coordinated and still be able to get those shots. Not just like do the stunts, but be able to film them in a certain way too. It's just all crazy. Um, all right, let's go to your number one, Mr. Kibbles. All right, so number one, it's my guy. It's a little radical. It's kind of a sex fiend, but <laughs> boy, did the right thing. And that's uh, that's going to be the robot Wally from the motion picture Wally. Oh, wow. Uh, this look, is a great pick. Look, so, you know, Nomadland is a big Oscar frontrunner, too, and kind of a big theme of that movie that people are talking about is you know, consumerism and, and anti-consumerism. Wally was the original anti-consumerism icon. You know, he's he's taken down this giant corporation uh, from within, basically. He went up to space to, to tell the corporation to fuck off. Uh, you know, that's that's activism at its finest. Is, and, is any of Wally, and I, and I can't remember because it's been some time, about sort of like robot rights and like the idea of... Uh, well, well, like you know, at what point do we? That was definitely on the agenda. Artificial yeah. intelligence. <laughs> I think it's on there, but it's you know, I think environmentalism is obviously kind of for sure. We're we're destroying the planet, and you know, and we're becoming lazy. And uh, well, he was neither of those things, and he inspired all the little puppy people on the spaceship to get their act together and come back to Earth. Wally was the best of us, some might say. He really was. He's he's the best. Per he's the best person I I know personally. I don't know about. <laughs> But, it's an incredible uh, animated film. I mean, because really? there's, there's very, like, I mean, there's, is there any, I can't even remember, is there any dialogue? There, the human played by Jeff Garland says, Oh, that's okay. But he's talking to the robot. So that, and, yeah. but, um, but no, for the first hour of that movie, it's just Wally, like, watching old movies from the 30s and 40s and, uh, really, dancing I, with the robot girlfriend. So. I have never seen the movie, so it's like a basically like a silent movie with basically starting like BB-8 sort of beeping around and going around doing stuff. Or like, how's it work? Pretty much, and without I guess without spoiling it, um, you know, Wally finds a plant, and it's the first plant that's grown on Earth in like 800 years. Huh. It's post-apocalyptic, like Mad Max, um, and he finds this plant, and it ends with him going up to a spaceship with this robot Eve, who he's in love with and he wants to date and they end up saving the world so robot love robot rights and environmentalism all in the same movie that sounds really fantastic i probably need to give it a watch i mean sometimes i just like, see it's, i think it was back then i just looked it up as in 2008 uh, probably was in that phase of like oh i'm too old for animated movies and now like when you grow up and get a little bit more mature you're like no i'm actually need to start watching them more because now kibbles <laughs> I, we had this debate on a previous episode of this podcast but where do you think wally and eve fall on the artificial intelligence scale oh god <laughs> elaborate what do you mean by that well <laughs> tread, tread lightly tread lightly kibbles oxford english dictionary defines artificial intelligence as what um well you know yeah. i guess that to me there's like a threshold that has to be broken from like robot to ai you know to go from being like like the t1000 to the to the skynet 
Um, but that's not to say some can't fall on that spectrum. It's spectrum. Yeah, it's just more of a. I mean, I think I think the big thing with them though is that they're not cute. They're not androids. They're not mm-hmm. humans. Yeah. Like, Wally is just is literally like a little box mm-hmm. with a with a cute little head. Um, so I, I, yeah, more towards the robot side for me. Okay. All right, Budge Budge wants to say something, but we're gonna move on to Budge's picks. Go for <laughs> your top three activists, uh, Budge. Well, it's it's a good this is a good seg, uh, Fritz or Cables. I appreciate it because uh, uh, mine is also space themed. It's a uh, it is Jesus. and it's a recommendation. Uh, it's it's one of the it's a series of books, okay, but I think the show is actually better. And I, and I, I think I've listed it on here for some, for something else. But my uh, number three favorite activist in, in TV or film would be James Holden from the TV show The Expanse, uh, which is on Amazon, starting on Sci-Fi. It's 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 Jeff it's, again. The backstory is it's Jeff Bezos kind of saved it. It's his favorite show. Pumped like three hundred fifty million dollars into it. Uh, oh I don't God. love the newest season. But uh, it's still, you know, obviously very watchful. But James Holden plays kind of a, you know, a guy who kicked out of the Navy, uh, kind of captain of a, of a, you know, a space barge, if you will, that sort of somehow finds himself to be, uh, being the voice of the, you know, voiceless in a, you know, in the next two hundred years, right? In a, in a, in a society in which we've sort of colonized our solar system but not like the outer solar system um but in that sense he kind of seems to be again he gives voice to the voiceless so I, he is going to have to be one of my one of my top three activists um my number two would be uh maybe kind of the original socialist uh at least from english folklore but i would say my favorite iteration would be from robin hood men in tights uh and that would be robin hood, <laughs> you know steal from the rich give the poor i don't know if there was more of a activist in that sense than then one than the traditional robin hood story um well, but are we talking fox robin hood or this this was a heated debate amongst in uh in my brain but i'm gonna have to go with the carry <laughs> and i don't know how to say his last name the carry carry ools ools okay i think that's how you say it yeah uh version just because well i watched uh that robin hood maybe every day growing <laughs> up like i think i wore out that cassette I also some for Christmas I got in a stocking I got a Oodalali Oodalali shirt um, with the with the rooster playing the banjo or the the lute, uh, but that that movie was fun you know I think Men in Tights is funnier uh, OG appearance of Dave Chappelle hilarious yeah that's gonna have to be in my oh. rewatch you uh you big fan <laughs> are you big fan of uh Blinken <laughs> Dude, yes and Little John. Yeah, Between, little like uh, Robin Hood and Redwall, Budge just loves animals with like medieval archery skills and stuff like that. Are you a bigger uh, Robin Hood fan or Redwall fan? Ooh, I mean, you know, that's a good question. Those are, I guess, one was from when I was like a child, the other from like adolescence. So, so you grew I, into Redwall. Yeah, I would say so, and I would, but I would say the that Robin Hood laid the seeds. Yeah, Robin Hood uh, was the harbinger of your Redwall obsession. Yeah, uh, which is also becoming a Netflix series, by the way. Uh, it's been picked up, a new Redwall series, which we'll all look forward to. We'll have to review, Matthew. Oh, no, I'll absolutely. Oh, I, I'm going to have to like, reread the books. I've not read them in years. Well, okay, years. So, so I'll give there another There are a ton of books, aren't to there? A, yeah, to a, to a friend, Griff Waller and I, who also <laughs> we took a trip to the beach in the last like couple of years, and we tried to listen to the red wall on audiobook for part of the way down there and let's just say we did not get very far oh damn it was not as it was not as i don't know not as fascinating as it was when you were what 10 yeah 
I don't know. It's not to say it wasn't bad. It just was harder to get through than I expected to. Yeah, I don't know. It was sort of like one of those things where you're like, oh, you're like forced to read as a kid. And that was something that you sort of gravitated to because it was animals acting like humans. And so it was sort of supposed to be kind of fun. But yeah, maybe as an adult, it's not as as fun to listen to. All right, Budge, go to your, go to your number one activist. My number one is, is going to be, uh, uh, you know, I guess it's very much inspired kind of uh, this pick was inspired by the by the film we're about to review, but my number one would be Jesse Owens, uh, who was a star in sport and uh, in several documentaries, but particularly kind of like breaking the racial barrier in the Olympic Games in Berlin, right? Winning gold medals in front of uh, Hitler and the rest of the Nazis. Um, also, shout out fellow Alabamian, one of the finest. Uh, Are you from Alabama, much? I am. No, we all are. Yeah, <laughs> originally. Originally. Oh wait, you guys. Know. <laughs> we we all met on Twitter. I'm sorry, is Kibbles a stranger? <laughs> you didn't know Budge is like diehard Alabama support, or do you just not? You knew he was, went to Alabama. Do you just not know he was from Alabama? I just don't think he knew that it was public. Oh okay. Oh shit, my bad. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I was just yeah messing with him mostly, but that's fine. Yeah, the brain here is not working tonight. That it's well, it, so. it's in my bio that I'm a diehard Alabama fan. You can find it on Boot Crew Media. dot <laughs> com. Um, Wait, so so Buzz, are you referencing like a Jesse Owens movie? Or you just saying Jesse Owens? Yeah, well, I think Race was a uh, the big documentary he was in. Um, but I, I again, he was such a big figure. He's been covered in in so many things. But I remember I'm trying to remember Race a few years back was the was the big one. So, but I felt like that was still fair game. Yeah, what what a play on words, race for someone that's a sprinter and obviously a civil rights activist. What a great, great title. It just writes itself. Um, all right, so let's move on to Preston's. Preston, what are your top three activists? All right, um, let's see. How am I going to rank these? Okay, number three, I'm going to go um, with, let's see. All right, I'm going to go with a show, a show we all grew up with. So you can kind of... Uh, Pick your activists if you want, but I'm going with Sesame Street. <laughs> so Sesame Street touched pretty much every, I mean, if you even want to call it activists, I mean, like they, they touched on anti-bullying, self-acceptance, importance of music and arts, and uh, obviously childhood development. Um, they even talked about environmentalism, HIV AIDS awareness. Uh, Sesame Street like covered and still to this day covers um, a lot of important issues in our society. And they do it in a very fun way, as we all know, with Muppets. Um, very so educational. Very educational. Um, and uh, to, that, to that point, uh, read up on the Sesame Street effect, a very real thing that uh, I think studies were done for years about kids who grew up watching Sesame Street versus those who didn't. And there's a pretty big gap as far as like, you know, basic like education and information um but yeah so sesame street is number three I that pick is really gonna it. trigger there's some people driving in their cars right now listening to this <laughs> that are so triggered and gripping the steering wheel yelling what like, is oscar the grouch an activist for preston if you had to guess uh clearly not littering <laughs> is he is he a single stream is does he live in a single stream trash can or is i think he changes it up that's fair. That's fair. He does. Fair. But also, do you think he has like the silver stream of trash cans? Like the is that Tamir to Kibbles? Either. This is, this is positive I think group. It, I think at this point he's got a couple of solar panels on his <laughs> trash. <laughs> on top of it. Uh, but, I mean, if you, that, 
Yeah. If, if you're caught littering around Oscar the Grouch, you might as well just call it a day. Why do you think it's so grouchy? Yeah. Also the subject of a great Chappelle show skit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, what, Budge, why, why would people be triggered by Sesame Street? Well, I, I guess, like, I, I, I don't know if, okay, how do we phrase this? I don't know if I would consider Sesame Street to be activist in the sense that I think it just provides basic education and basic tolerance. <laughs> um, sure. But, but so some might say it shouldn't be, act, somebody should, some might say that, like, children's television shouldn't be in the business of activism. I'm not okay. making that. I'm not saying that. No, no, no. I agree. I, I understand. I'm not, well, I'm not saying I agree with that point, but I, I, I agree in that people would, would certainly take umbrage to that notion. I mean, I think some like, you know, you know Sesame, Sesame Street was always, sorry, real quick. I mean, I think one of the powers of Sesame Street was that they were generally uh, ahead of the curve on a lot of, a lot of issues and talking about them and the fact that they were a children's show uh, almost, I wouldn't say like gave them a pass, but it, it kind of opened people up to these topics that maybe we're not going to discuss them uh, uh, within maybe their friend group or certainly around the dinner table. So I think Sesame Street was very powerful in that way and still is today, but I mean, certainly throughout the 80s and 90s when we were having a lot of, uh, you know, societal changes. Yeah, so I mean, I, I do think some parents in the Deep South would consider Bert and Ernie like gay rights activists, like low key gay rights activists, and like I think get really upset about their kids watching it or whatever. Sure, but, uh, but go go ahead to your number two, Preston, and that's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, my number two, I'm going with uh, Dor- Bert and Ernie as LGBT. I'm going with Bert and Ernie. Yeah, no, <laughs> number one is Big Bird. Uh, who was, of course, an activist for uh, oversized birds. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am going with Dora Lee Violet and Judy from the 1980s comedy film Nine to Five, which starred, of course, Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda. Um, I loved this movie growing up. I remember seeing it a couple times with my mom, and uh, she's a huge, she was a huge Dolly Parton fan, still is, I assume. Um, what's cool about this, obviously, this movie was... Uh, kind of like the revenge of the secretaries from, I think it was, it was based on a, a little movement in the seventies. Uh, and then they kind of did their own fictionalized version of it, but obviously it addressed uh, the, the conduct like workplace uh, harassment. Um, it was obviously, it was a huge uh, women's rights film at the time. And, and, and it really has gained steam over the years as become this like really like just a big, I wouldn't even call it a cult classic because it's become so impactful in so many ways and obviously a lot of the issues they addressed in that movie are very much around today um and what's really cool is that dolly parton lily tomlin and jane fonda are all in their own right are all activists outside of this film um so to me this is a uh kind of a trifecta and kind of to your point one of the things i thought was interesting about that that pairing of women right is they all kind of run the spectrum of, sort of like uh fan bases and mm-hmm. and sort of like i don't know if you want to say beliefs but right you know like i mean dolly parton's uh, i think fan base now is just massive right it's probably the biggest cross cultural fan right. base. But i think at the Covers time the that movie came out it was certainly like appalachian you know <sighs> white uh, whereas like jane fonda's right was very liberal like obviously hanoi jane you know 
Yeah. Uh, so I just think it, so that it just kind of makes it what it had such widespread appeal that you had people of all sort of walks of life and beliefs going to see that movie. Right. Right. Oh, and then Lily Tomlin was, mm-hmm. uh, I think, at the time, even before. I mean, she's an uh, openly gay actress mm-hmm. um, and she's done a lot for animal rights. So, I mean, you've got three powerful actresses all coming together to do a film that talked about, I mean, it talked about uh, equal pay for equal work for women, more advancement opportunities and end to sexual harassment. Um, but of course they took a very unconventional approach by uh, like kidnapping the boss and everything. And like, uh, there's some pretty hilarious moments in that movie, but it, it does cover a lot of serious topics that um, we still deal with in today's society. All right, we spent a lot of time on that number two. Number one is pretty obvious. And uh, another great movie, uh, but Cynthia Erivo as Harriet Tubman from the movie Harriet. Um, one of the first, like, you know, civil rights activists, uh, abolitionists. Um, I guess you could say, in a way, I mean, she certainly did a lot for women's rights. I mean, the fact that she, as a black woman did what she did back then is incredible. Um, and the movie does a good job of- well, And also the of, scars of, that she went through too, like physically, like beaten, you know. Beaten, oh gosh, dude, yeah. it's, uh, if you really get down to like the history of what Harriet Tubman went through, um, and like, I think also like she never lost a slave in like <laughs> journey, like journeying through the Underground Railroad, which is insane. Um, yeah, she didn't fuck around. Cynthia Reba is such a good actress. I'm not laughing at Harriet Tubman, but this did bring up this made like brought up a little Budge memory I have from fifth grade in a Mentone trip. I remember Preston, you were there. Budge was there. Kibbles was did not go to school with us, but in fifth grade, oh, I was in, I was in Budge's group and he led the Underground Railroad thing. Do you remember that? And yeah, you put we got, on we got you lost. Put on the, uh, I don't remember exactly how. I just remember you putting on this like big Southern, old Southern Colonel Sanders style accent because like the the counselors came and tried to like you know oh what's going on there they were trying to act like they were like slave collectors and you go oh i'm just a blah 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 from the Shenandoah valley and like went on and on i was uh, i was so impressed with budge's acting skills trying to fooled all the counselors even as a young age yeah it was actually pretty amazing uh (laughs) i'll say one thing and this is gonna i mean i i just think looking back on something like that and my wife i remember she was telling me recently their school also did the same thing and uh, she just re- recalls like black, like some of the black kids in her grade being like, I mean, they didn't say the word fuck, but being like, what, why are we playing a game called the underground railroad? I mean, just, <laughs> I mean, like, that's one of those things. Like we don't think about it much, but like we grew up playing a fucking game with a bunch of, a bunch of white kids playing a game called the underground railroad. And, you know, it's just like, just to me, it's just fucked up. <laughs> To be quite oh, honest, hey. I can't believe we ever did that. For the of record, people did not know. play that game. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, but I think it's important that we like we make note of that. And For the we record, realize, we, like, didn't, we didn't come up with the game. We, we were did forced not. to play the game. The we were forced to play our, our grade. Yes. Our grade was, you know. <laughs> relied on this playing his game <laughs> i know i know we we I, and i think it's i mean it's something to like expose and talk about uh, it was just uh it was it's something that like being young like yeah we were forced to play this game we didn't really we just learned about it we're in alabama and we're like okay and all these adults also white are literally telling us to like 
uh, escape through the Underground Railroad while they act like they're a bunch of slave people. I mean, it's it's so fucked up. But like this should happen. This we should. Happen, we and should I, I wish it never had. For the listeners, that this game was not to make light of the Underground Railroad. Oh, no. I, believe, I believe the game was educational. However, it is in a poor taste. I think it was right. both. It was supposed to be educational and also sort of. Uh, I don't know, like a, a you know, it, it took place. We were in the South Minto mm-hmm. in Alabama, and I think mm-hmm. they were actually saying that some parts of the Underground were, Railroad went correct. through that, it, through that park, yeah. and so yeah. that was kind of what the point was, okay. both to educate us and sort of like get you in whatever. Mm-hmm. In no way, shape, or form inspire can we, imagination. Yeah, can we understand what being a slave, mm-hmm. escaping slavery, was like? But it was sort of just trying to be like, oh, this is how they moved in the shadow of darkness, blah blah blah, and that was it. I mean, I don't think there was any nefarious activity. Yes, in in my I'm not. Time. I'm not saying it was nefarious it's that i mean that to me speaks to kind of how like it's it was just it's just something that happened it was tone deaf i mean right i mean if we had a group of of black kids with us i you know that could that could really spark some trauma in their lives and at the very least be like pretty shocking oh yeah absolutely completely 100 percent tone deaf and it and since it was a bunch of whole white kids or whatever, no one was really there to speak out in terms of a different point of view or perspective to make right. people sort of think about it that way. But yeah, all right. So that's going to wrap up Preston's fix. We don't need to get too heavy on that because we're going to get heavy on that uh, in just a minute when we review the film. <laughs> so I'm going to do my three activists. Uh, I'm, I feel like an idiot because you guys all went pretty serious for the most part and mine are all complete jokes. So number three, I've got Michael Scott, even though this isn't really activism, this is kind of charity work, but I did it for the, Michael Scott rabies awareness fun run which he did put on a run for weight rabies which uh, it's not really activism but still it's one of my favorite episodes of all time just because he hits Meredith with the car kills it sound like he was I'm, I'm just glad you didn't go with Scott's for dots I mean, oh shit oh god, god. <laughs> Oh man, that's act. That's uh, that's grift. That's not even grifting. I guess it was grifting for attention. But Scott's touch. I can't even sit through that episode because it's so painful. I Dude, literally have to I turn skip it, off. it every time. I skip uh, it every time. Honestly, like that actually encapsulates my beef with the Office, right? Like I think it's funny and well written, but like I just get such bad secondhand embarrassment that like Michael Scott to me is just such an outrageous character that like it the whole. So what you're feeling, Matthew, for like that episode is significantly how i feel like for every episode (laughs) oh i mean every single episode you go oh no don't do that and like because you because it's so kind it's not real but it just it really does hurt and the british office actually hurts a lot worse because it it Uh, actually has this sort of gravity to it because it just feels so much more real and and that one is just so much nastier and it's come down is so much harder um all right so uh, real quick that the, there was michael scott's dunder mifflin scran on <laughs> meredith palmer memorial celebrity rabies awareness program fun run race for the cure oh and that's the one where he also is there like, an acronym for that that's the one where he actually is God. sort of like a like a know. sex offender because he he asks pam to come in he like that that is sort of low-key one of like the weird things about michael scott's lovable character but he does sort of like manipulate pam into seeing his penis in that episode which is sort of crazy. oh yeah i mean I think Steve Carell said it. He's like, uh, you know, like the office just totally wouldn't work today. Like it's <laughs> Michael Scott's character is I I, think, because I think they've talked about doing like a it would work. I mean, it's still the most watched. It was the most watched thing on Netflix for like years and years and years. It would work. I think it would be yeah. a harder time to get it started just because people might cringe at first and there'd be more pushback. Yeah. But people would still definitely they, they would have to change aspects of the humor for sure. Yeah. Oh, I mean the, that first that really first deep. season. 
there's yeah. that episode where they do that sort of racial thing, the racial uh, sensitivity right. program, and that would not fly for a first season of television. You would not right. be able to do that one. All right, yeah. number two, I've got Smokey from The Big Lebowski because he's a pacifist, conscientious objector, uh, and I really just like it because that <laughs> one good. line where Walter's like, uh, where the dude's like, he's got mental issues, and Walter's like, you mean beyond pacifist? <laughs> But uh, yeah, so uh, he he obviously was an activist because he didn't have to go to Nam because he was a certified pacifist. Number one, I've got Captain America and Captain America Civil War because he's fighting for the rights of all superheroes so they don't have to be regulated by the damn government. What do you think about that one, Budge? I, I this was very close to being <laughs> mine. I oh, really? thought this is like a as an out there pick um, that Captain America is because like even in the comic books, Captain America like. You know, he he will often go again, you know, I guess like if you just saw Captain America and like his picture, like in the comic book and didn't know anything about him, you'd assume he'd be sort of a shill for the government. And to some degree, he starts that way. But as his character has grown over the years in not only the MCU, but even in the comic books, he is like very much stands up more for like arguably the American public than the American than the U.S. government. Yeah. Uh, and I think, and, and again, and, and I think that's exactly what you saw happen in Civil War. And you saw, obviously, the seeds were sown in Winter Soldier. Uh, and maybe, I mean, I guess even maybe in the first adventure, but. Oh, yeah, he's absolutely fighting for weight uh, against government oversight. And mm -hmm. I think everyone can agree on that. Um, all right, so. That's Winter Soldier, right? I mean, they like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. And shield in Winter Soldier. So I think that, uh, I think that goes to Matthew's point for sure. All right, so we're going to wrap that up in our marquee picks. So that, that went a little, that definitely took some time. So we're going to move on to our review of the HBO Max recent release of Judas and the Black Messiah, the Shaka King movies, uh, biopic about Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill. Um, I want to just sort of start it off just a little bit because I was, the one thing that really stood out to me is, A, this this is sort of like, a, I guess it's a standout, but this movie sort of has sort of like vibes like The Departed and Point Break in terms of like where an informant gets sort of caught up in this organization or whatever. And then sort of has, you sort of see the organization through his eyes. He gets a little sympathy, like you sort of like develop sympathy for the person that maybe he's supposed to be ratting on, right? Uh, but this one was so, odd, I shouldn't say odd to me, but what stood out to me the most was that this was real, so those movies aren't necessarily real. I guess that the part kind of is based on some truth. Point Break obviously isn't. But this, what was, since it is a real story, what struck to me is that how young these people were when they were doing this very, very serious stuff. So Bill O'Neill, who's the informant, was asked to be an FBI informant at the age of 17 and infiltrate the Black wow. Panthers. And then Fred, um, Fred Hampton at the beginning of this movie wasn't even 20 years old. I think he was only 19. At the end, when he's assassinated, he was just 21. Yeah, that, so, that like, blew my mind when and, that. And, and so I kind of wanted to ask you guys. So like when you when you they they held off on doing that. They held off on really talking about mm -hmm. the age, which I thought was really important. And I, I like it's sort of just. Well, I don't know. When you when you look at it through that lens of how young they are, did it add something to the story? Well, in retrospect, do you think like uh, I just was so dumbfounded by how much these people were like asked to do at such a young age? What do you think, Kibbles? I'm sorry. No, it definitely did. I, um, you know, we were talking a little bit before pod, but the, you know, the, the Fred Hinton story is not one at least I grew up really knowing very well. You know, I, I knew that he was assassinated, but I didn't know this story. And I certainly didn't know, even throughout watching this movie, um, that they were so young. Now, I think part of that in the movie is that they they got they got you know A list actors to play the parts. They got yeah. Chloe Field, 
who are obviously, and I think it was the right decision because they were so good. Um, but I think from a from just an appreciation of of what happened and just the the devastating nature of this story, um, yeah, realizing that they were they were kids that they were, and thinking back to to what we you know I'm sure all of us were in our late teens, early twenties, yeah, taking on this type of response this type of responsibility, uh, it's mind boggling. It really is. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about myself at the age of 19. I would never even comprehend like thinking and. The, the, the big picture of the way he's thinking and the type of change he wants to have like Fred Hampton did. And he's not only like thinking that way, he's going out and doing it. And he's not like doing it in an age where you can sort of do it on your phone. He's literally going out, like convincing people in like the like people that hate him to join his side. And he's only 19, 20 years old doing it. And he's doing it in very convincing. That's, I mean, that was his skill, like political organizing and speaking and rhetoric and stuff like that. And just sort of being a very big leader. I just can't imagine leading people at the age of 19 and not only just leading people, but doing it in a very impactful way. And that's what blew my mind. And I would just, I would just quickly add that kind of the flip side of that is the O'Neill character because he is yeah. more of just the typical 17, 18 year old where he is, he is self-interested. He is conflicted one time. Yeah. At one moment, you know, he wants to be a black Panther at another moment. He wants to just be wealthy and well off and stylish. And that, that's true to that's true to life and also kind of, uh, you know, it, it made me reflect a little bit. Well, uh, one question I wanted to ask just maybe like from a writing standpoint or film standpoint is that do you think they sort of like almost hit they didn't you could like ham up the age like I said to sort of make the point that this is crazy that these kids these people are doing this at a young age but the film almost hit it from us because in some sense I almost if they would have jumped off right at the bat and said these people are 17 19 I would have almost found it unbelievable in some sense so that that, that that's what I what I was going to say Matthew is that it did such a good job of shocking me at the end yeah that I thought that the fact that that's like one of the the things I took away and it was only there for, and it was only there for a second. Right. Is, is I think it, it's like, if they had shown me that, like you said at the beginning, it, it would have been less of a, cause I would, I'm like you, I would have been like, okay, these kids are 19, but like, I, how are they doing this? But I also think it's worth noting because I did not realize that Bill O'Neill was 17 when first arrested, but there are now legal protections against that type of. I wanted to ask you guys about that. Like asking a 17 year old to be an FBI. So, like that, so now even... and there are different laws that vary state to state, to. but like if you, you know, when they ask someone to kind of wear like a wire and a lot of this happened in states like Florida, Georgia, Alabama, like where somebody who was like 15 or 16 would get arrested for possession of like marijuana and the local officers would ask them to wear wires and a couple of people and, and i'm gonna forget their names and I, and I should know this uh were killed in the process and were able and it's unfortunate to say like a lot of these people were you know upper middle class white children that because of this because of these instances where like the parents had no idea that their kids were signed up to do this type of program, but they were told, you know, we'll wipe your record clean. You won't be charged if you do, you know, if you wear a wire to like buy drugs that like it had just escalated from there that like the legislature was able to be lobbied to change the law. So again, there are protections for anyone underage that would find themselves in Bill O'Neill's situation. But once again, this was a very different time. Well, so I'm sorry, I might've missed that. Do you have to be of a certain age to, to do something like that to to be like an informant, essentially. Uh, I mean, I think it varies state again, you know. But once again, there are like he's sort of forced in that position where he has no choice, and I think now there are again there are protections that pre would prevent 
a law enforcement from requiring that of someone underage. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like, so, we, so, hmm. so back then, um, do you know about it back then? Like, so was was like Jesse Plemons's character, L- Lieutenant Harris or whatever, was he actually like giving Mitchell. him a, a fair deal or was he completely well, manipulating him? I, I, this I can't speak to that, but like I could tell you that that was that's fairly common law enforcement practice and has been for, you know, a century, if not more. But if you were like representing Bill O'Neill in that case, and, and before he agreed to do it, would would you be like, no, don't take this. You're 17 years old. Or would you be like, no, this is actually pretty fair. I mean, what were the alternatives? Were, were the alternatives almost been that he could have gone to like a juvie facility? Because he was only 17. That's what I was saying. Yeah, like, I mean, I guess, I, it, I, I, again, I, I'm not sure what they could have charged him with. But I definitely think that what what Jesse Plemons' character was giving coming down, he was like, you're going to get hit with eight years impersonating yeah yeah, and then three for the gun or or what and i'm gonna mix it like that was obviously going to be because he's negotiating so he's going to be more on the heavy-handed side so like the truth probably lies there somewhere in between yeah like add a few years to each charge well one of the reasons i wanted to ask if you thought like the filmmakers but it's also hold on it's also before the crime bill so just because the gun wouldn't you know if this was happened in the 80s or the 90s then you might be looking at additional like you know you got the requirement of if they've got a gun when committing a crime that's a that's a mandatory because he anyway well one reason i wanted to ask though is like because they actually make a point to like show bill o'neill's character drink a decent like not a lot but he does drink like once or twice with uh jesse Fleming's character when they meet up every time to like give information at the uh, restaurant and he also the night before that he uh you know drops the drug and fred hampton's drink or whatever he's at a bar and he's not 21 in all of these so i mean not that it matters it's not like i'm like condone like not condoning it or anything like that i was wondering i was wondering if they like kind of intentionally sort of misled you about his age just because like i said it is sort of unbelievable that like a 17 18 year old kid is sort of doing this and like they almost want to portray him as sort of like a struggling adult but he actually is like a real like a kid and so i didn't know like do you think that was intentional did you think they were really trying to make him look a little bit older or feel a little bit older or do you think that that was just something that people did back then I think they went with two of the best actors currently working. Yeah. yeah. I even heard an, an interview where Shaka King basically said that those are the two guys he had in mind. And I, you know, I, I think there might be an aspect of wanting to age him up for that shock at the end, like Fudge said, but I think they just wanted Kaluuya and Stanfield. Yeah. I mean, well, I it was think- both like 30. I think Kaluuya is definitely his 30s. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably late 20s. The, uh, the only, I, I shouldn't say it like a, like they did it to shock. I just think it's because like, if you started the story as like with them being 17 and 19 in this day and age, it almost just seems like people like would turn it, not turn it off, but tune out and say that this isn't really believable. Just, I can't imagine 17, 19 year old kids like doing that. So it's almost like, let's not even mention it and just have you assume they're in their thirties. That's, that's almost like what I was thinking. I didn't know, think it was like some misleading people to shock them more just to like not even mention it because people might tune out at the beginning thinking this is kind of silly like can you imagine well, like i think I mean, maybe there's also just i mean it's like a, a lot of some some films that we watch that there is a lot of historical context that it might be on the viewer to look into maybe a little bit before they watch or or just read about it after i mean a lot of people now of course O'Neill was not technically a part of the Black Panther Party, but the Black Panther Party was founded and made up of very young yeah. people. I mean, I mean, Bobby Seale was, I don't know this to be a fact. I mean, he was, he was definitely older and he was one of the founders, he and Huey P. Newton, P. Newton. Uh, but Bobby Seale, I think, was born in the 30s. So 
that he would have been a lot older, I guess, compared to some of these other people. But I mean, like it was a very new, uh, I mean, like a very new, somewhat idealistic party or, or movement that was occurring at that time. And so you did have a lot of, uh, you know, young kind of kids at or, or 19, 20, 21, 22. And so I, I don't know, maybe, maybe Shaka is just kind of like, all right, if you're watching this movie, you should kind of have already a pretty good idea of, of the Black Panther Party and, and what they stood for and that they were kind of young and revolutionary. And, uh, but that is, I mean, O'Neill's character, I mean, to me, see, to me, it's just like this story in general, it's just, it's, I, I didn't know anything about it. I'd heard of Fred Hampton, but uh, like you said, Kibbles, but I didn't know anything. Like, I just assumed he was over here in Oakland. <laughs> I didn't know he was in, I, I also didn't know how many branches there were of the Black Panther Party. I mean, like this, at the very least, this, this move, this film, like really spurred me to understand that, that part of civil rights history more, because generally we're taught, like, especially us in Montgomery, we're taught Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, you know, like we were taught some other stuff, but like that, you know, like, you don't get a lot of these stories. So I, I think it's really cool that they, they, yeah. they're speaking and so I don't, I don't know if they really wanted to focus too much on age or they assumed that you would know just because it's just like we're trying to tell a story that outside of black like black people like black communities or just black history in general like a lot of people mainstream people don't know this they don't know that, that this happened yeah and that, I think I think yeah that's just not yeah, a focus I think it's also worth noting too that you also forget even in the even the 60s and whatnot like john lewis i think was like 15 or 16 when he first came yeah. well that's what yeah I that's true yeah. the perception of sort of like young people today in terms of like generation z and millennials people like like think they're like lazy or don't do anything it's, i was almost just sort of thinking that if you start off with like sort of that context that like what people think about young people this day and age and you sort of throw an age at them you'd be like whoa 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 these people like it almost just feels like i, I yeah when i when i watched that would be kind of cool yeah, like at, at the beginning, if they did something like that, and there, I can almost see like a quote being like, you know, like revolutionaries that come in all ages, essentially, like, you know, like don't don't sleep on the young or on the youth, because you do see a lot of people in Gen Z that they become like environmentally, uh, you know, I mean, Black uh, active. Lives Matter is, produ- is Black Lives, yeah, movement. They're pretty, yeah, they're pretty young. Sunrise Movement is very is pretty young. I mean, a lot of these movements do start because they have idealistic. Uh, tones to them but they also stand for very real issues that uh, you know impact young people who are like look i got a long life ahead of me i want to change some things um but i think that i think that would have been interesting matthew if they'd done that because it is incredible that i like at such a young age especially like i didn't really think about it, especially o'neill would be like all of a sudden be asked to be like an informant and be like in these really violent intense moments which lake lake does such a good job of like wearing just like terror on his face at times you know like oh my god what have i gotten myself into <laughs> incredible facial acting that's yeah yeah the facial acting is so good um i i will say and i don't know if this is a counterpoint to, to what we're saying about some of the historical context with the age but i think a big strength of this movie um including in relation to some of the to some of the other movies about this period, like the Trial of the Chicago Seven and One Night in Miami that came out at similar periods is that it really doesn't feel like a documentary at all. And it doesn't feel like it's yeah. any sort of, it's not, it's not didactic. It's not trying to teach. It's just trying to tell you a raw, unvarnished story. And it's trying to do it in this captivating way. And I, right. 
I, I as much as I like those movies, and I do, um, you know, they, you feel like they have, they're trying to leave you in part a lesson. You know, Childish Chicago 7 is trying to teach you kind of about some of the infighting on the left and, and also a little bit about um, the treatment of Bobby Seale and the Black Panthers. This movie is just, try, it's just telling you a story and it's telling you it from this very unique, it's very interesting uh, perspective of this, of this FBI mole, but it, you know, you know, whether, whatever, to whatever extent that the story is true. And I, from what I've seen, it is pretty accurate. It just feels true. And it just feels like you are just dropped, you know, into this war zone. And yeah. I think that's why the, the movie is so successful. Well, yeah, I mean, it's very I, effective I, in that. I mean, I, like it. I, I do agree with you at some point, but in terms, because I did want to ask this sort of question is you you just kind of said that you don't feel like it's pushing you in any certain way. And I kind of wanted to ask, because this is based on a true story. And I wanted to know, did you guys think it was a fair depiction? I know that we already talked about, we didn't really know exactly what was going on. None, none of us learned about this story in history, history class growing up or anything like that. And the most I read about it was really on Wikipedia. So I'm not asking like, is it historically accurate? But did you think since like, when you do tell a story that is from real life do you like they don't have a like you said it's not a documentary but you still have maybe some obligation to be 100% objective do you think it was 100% fair do you think there were certain elements like even I just want to like because the title itself sort of almost says it's pushing you in a direction right that the guy the informants Judas and the black messiah is Fred Hampton and I do think there was some like religious references in there sometimes but uh and that's, that's a Hoover quote too. you see yeah. but that's what I'm saying that's, that's where I was going and this is what I wrote down in my notes watching this was that obviously I know a lot of J. Edgar Hoover's history and sort of how he felt about radical elements of the civil rights movement right kind of you know tying them to communists and whatnot and considering communism sort of the greatest threat to uh you know American civilization what I, and this and I'm and I'm not say this is where I became if I if I was skeptical it was sort of like his conversations with Mitch, Mitch Jesse Plemons character Mitchell where like he sort of talks about the white way of life right coming to an end and I, and I not to say that J Edgar Hoover was like extremely redeemable character or didn't and, and didn't have his flaws but like I, that was the point where i'm wondering you know is there any evidence that like he said these types of things because there's a there's a vast difference to me from being concerned about communist and radical elements in uh political movements in the united states and being a white supremacist i, I don't are think you, that are just, you you're wondering if jay Edgar hoover really said those things well i'm talking i'm not I'm, there, there are obviously things i know he said Right. And obviously the black in black Messiah and then being concerned about those elements. And obviously yeah. to the extent where he probably focused far more on those elements than he did in others. But what I'm saying is when he's, when he's having that conversation with Mitchell about like his daughter bringing home an African-American, oh, yeah, I, I, I just questioned, I'm like, okay, have, you know, this is, I can see, you know, how you got here from A to B to C, but like, I need, I, I don't know. I question whether or not that leap from B to C was there that leap from, you know, being i don't think my point was what jay edgar hoover was saying by why all means in hindsight is not acceptable you know language or a, a, a take if you will but was it all that uncommon for you know people of that era i don't know but i don't, I don't know so. if there's a big difference to me from saying what jay edgar hoover said in his powerpoint presentation to the fbi agents to his conversation with mitchell and the and his supervisor in the in the office 
Agreed. I think, uh, you know, just briefly say, I think yeah. the whole movie does such a good job of, you know, the old cliche, show, <laughs> not tell. Mm-hmm. I think every part of the movie does that brilliantly, except for some of the J. Edgar stuff. You know, <laughs> I think that conversation, a few other moments, just, you know, we, I don't know if we needed that conversation to know uh, what a problematic and complicated J. Edgar <laughs> Uh, agreed agreed and i don't want this to seem like i'm a j edgar hoover apologist but if you're asking me where i found the record you're you're saying like an agenda (laughs) and i would say that's where that's the point where i probably my suspension is like like, okay i would like to see the footnote here well yeah i mean like look who knows if that i I obviously will i'm probably going to google that just but like how would you even know if that type of specific conversation specifically about no uh, like if that even happened, you know, like I think maybe they're using him as a vessel for a lot of conversations white people were having at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mean, J. Edgar Hoover probably, probably would have believed all I, that. You know? I also saying is I, I, I and I, <laughs> I, I think that there is a massive difference between being concerned about, you know, once again, radical elements in you know, a pro African American civil rights movement, it, whether it be the Black Panther Party or the civil rights, and then being actively saying we have to make sure, you know, we want to advocate for the murder and to make sure that our white way of life, like there, th- that you, you know, there, I, I, there's a difference between those positions to me. Well, and I, I and gonna... I haven't, I haven't been shown the jump. That was all I was saying. I needed to see a little bit more. I just want like. Oh... The, the big conflict obviously is between the FBI and the Black Panthers, right? And so mm-hmm. like, did you think like both representations were fair? Did you think there was enough ambiguity in terms of like the people, the FBI, they all, and all the cops were generally kind of racist and assholes and like everybody, like, did you think they sort of like, it, you know, usually when you have these sort of conflicts, you get to sort of know the characters a little bit more in terms of like why they're acting a certain way. I mean, it, I, I don't know, do you, like, for instance, uh, well, uh, what was I going to say? Like, uh, I got to, I'll, I'll piggyback on that. And I was going to save this for characters when we rank the movie. But one of the things that, and I want to make this clear because it makes it seem like I'm nitpicking. I'm not. This movie was excellent. But if I will knock this one aspect of it was that I felt like Jesse Plemons' character, Bill Mitchell, I wanted to see him. You could tell he was troubled by some of the heavier handed tactics the FBI yeah. was taking. And then it's like we just said, then he immediately jumped to not only condoning them, but being an active participant. And I wished I had seen like him tra- make seeing that transition more. Like something. Get, that, yeah, what yeah, how did he get, be like, all right, we're doing this? Yes, exactly. I bought it more than you did, but I thought, and, and I think that's largely because Clemens is just so good at being simultaneously welcoming and benign and also just malevolent. Mm. And you know, it's it's the Todd from Breaking Bad thing where he's I, just, so, yeah, it's all I could do. And he will also shoot you in the face. Mm. Well, I, I, I think you want to go get a coffee and, 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 and I'll lock you in the basement later. And the reason <laughs> I, I just want to specify, I still think it's an excellent movie is that I know that that was not the, this was the point of that movie was not to show sort of like this movie was not about the escalation of that ideology. Right. Like Jesse Plemons was not the main character. Like take, you know, like he is a minor character in this movie. So like, I understand that like, if you're on a cutting room floor, maybe you're not going to get, it's not going to be, the movie is not about his development as a character. Right. It's about everyone else. So I, I get yeah. that. I'm just noting that was one of the things I noted. I would just say like in terms of like I was talking about in terms of conflict where I think they show the cops as all being just giant pieces of shit for the most part. But in terms of 
why they're coming after them in terms of like the, the cops coming after the Black Panthers, they don't really show any of the violence the Black Panthers do. They're very much like shown depicted as the victims in this movie. They sort of kind of brush over it. Like they talk about the one guy who tortured an informant and boiled water on him and like cut off his penis and stuff like that. Was, that. that, but that is true. But what I, what I was saying that is that they, they almost kind of brush over it because they still want you to like have a sympathetic view of Black Panthers, the Black Panther Party. Does that I'm, make sense? I'm not, like, I'm not trying to like argue yeah. one way or the other. No, no, I, just, no, no. I do I, think I, the film kind of had an angle. That's all I'm saying. They could have shown that. And if you show it on the movie, you might not feel as much sympathy for these people as maybe the movie wanted us to. Well, I, I see what you're saying, Matthew, but I think I would disagree because you, there was a whole intense scene in which the guy shoots like seven cops. Yeah. Like yeah, Jimmy, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Jake Winters character murders. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that, I mean, like what they're trying to establish uh, is like a subtle or not subtle, like a historical undertone to like the story is, is I think, I mean, that, that was a part of the Black Panther parties uh, or it became a very big part of, you know, what they, what they represent. It was like, you know, being anti-police brutality because of a lot of what, the members had experienced their entire lives and you know they very very like very much had a contentious relationship with cops whether it was here in oakland or in chicago and i mean i think that was just part of building the story and in, in a very real historical way i mean i i don't think they're necessarily trying to make you feel sympathy for the black panther party but but i will say this i mean this movie is directed and and uh, you know, written like I mean, it's it is there is a large, uh, large the, between the cast and the crew. This is this is a definitely made by a lot of black filmmakers, and and I think they very much, if I had to guess, wanted to, you know, I don't think preach or anything like that. I don't I don't think this movie is as woke as as like I think a lot of people who won't watch this movie they're scared it's going to be too woke and make them feel uncomfortable. I think it's very real. It's very raw. And I think at the at the very least, like, yeah, look, you got you have black filmmakers who probably know a lot more about the Black Panther Party than we ever will. And they're trying to depict a a a, a small story in a chapter in Chicago um, and, and try to do it as, as real as they can. I mean, they will have their biases, but I think that's because largely the Black Panther Party in society has not really been treated as a uh like a, a very kind like <laughs> historical well, yeah. uh, civil or, rights or even, or even I mean, accurately treated or, even or accurately treated, treated. exactly like, and, I, and I think what you're seeing a lot in movies today with a lot of black filmmakers they're being like all right it's now time for us to tell our stories from black people's perspective like you know like no more of this whitewashing no more like you know like spiel I'm not saying spiel but like uh, a white <laughs> a white director or a white writer trying to tell our stories we're going to do that right now. It's our turn. And so like, there might be a little bit of words uh, or like a more of a flattering light to put the Black Panther Party or, or really that's just, maybe that's just how they see it. I mean, it's really refreshing, honestly. I, 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 I like, I like what you're, where you're kind of going with that too, because it goes back to what you were saying about like education and what, you know, obviously in schools we grew up, you know, we didn't learn a lot about the Black Panther Party. We didn't learn about like the Tulsa riots but obviously that we're heavily featured in Watchmen, right? Like I, Crazy. I did a little bit of research on that. But one of the things that like, 
I just, that blew my mind watching this was like how many kids like the Black Panther Party was like feeding every day and the whole platform being like, no kids should go hungry in Chicago. And, and then them talking about we've come, and this just kind of like resonated with me a little bit when you were talking about how we've come to accept the fact that our kids will go to school hungry. And one of the things I think COVID has exposed in public schools is like, that has not changed. That right. So many kids rely on free meals that people at schools have still had to administer those even though even though kids aren't going to school particularly and like, black and brown yeah, absolutely kids. and my, it just my, it, my, was, it was crazy to me my, and i was like that's yeah. what he's saying right now when he's talking about that like this could be 2021 you know it's there i mean the, the, there's definitely a through line from a lot of the like when the black panther party started a huge part of what they were trying to do was institute this free breakfast for children programs. It was to address like food injustice, uh, community health clinics for education and treatment of diseases that affected the black community uh, at a, at a way higher rate and greater, you know, I mean, it was just, it was a, it's a, it was advocating for like class class struggle essentially I yeah, mean I, and I, and I think that's it kind of get like what we're talking about is that I think that we what 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 I knew of the Black Panther Party growing up was that they were militant like right that they were the militant version of oh, what was like doing. a peaceful yeah like I didn't know they were doing all these like social programs so like I think that while you know you could say maybe this movie had an agenda that showed them in a in a peaceful light you also saw them running guns so like I think yeah. my point is your perce our perception of the Black Panther Party is of it being militant and this was kind of showing the other side of it yeah well and they were very or at least they were me, very much yeah. they were huge proponents of open carry and uh <laughs> I, I don't know if i don't know if the nra was around then i think it oh they were definitely around and they and they i think they wanted or were were maybe a part of it in some way or are they are they're basically being like uh you know like like yeah we're, we're going to be proponents of open carry because so many other people seem to have guns and it's okay well you know we're gonna have some guns too and it obviously freaked out you know suburbia america <laughs> well yeah i mean now we're getting into like a historical lesson i, I feel like we're kind of woven outside of the movie <laughs> uh so we're kind of well, i think it's important to know that stuff before no no, no it absolutely them. is and i think you're right and I, that's something i didn't really consider and i wasn't trying to like go fishing in terms of like trying to ask you if there was an angle or not but but budget's right in terms of i, I do think it's important that like i i I think you're absolutely right. And sort of, you nailed it, Budge, because when I like was doing like a book report in eighth grade on like Jake or Hoover, and like he, he was obviously very big in Black Panther, mm -hmm. like he was investigating them. I just, the books, even I read the MA mm -hmm. library were about how the Black Panther was more military, mm -hmm. like organization compared to sort of like Martin Luther King is what, who we learned about because we grew up in Alabama. Mm -hmm. So when I did watch this, and like you said, they did, they were very, very heavily into uh, social programs. And like you said, the, the free breakfast and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So it is sort of like, maybe that is sort of the point is that they wanted to sort of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, re, not, I shouldn't say rebrand themselves, but sort of like show people that maybe grew up with the wrong perception of what the yeah or just, or I think just one sided perception this is like okay there's more yeah. to it like I, I still like recognize that the Black Panther Party had militant yeah factions to it and operated on some levels like a gang so I, I still get that but there's just there's more nuance to it. there's more and to that and I appreciate from this movie and I think the way they did the way they bring you into that world is just brilliant and because mm -hmm. it you know just the idea of using this Bill O'Neill character mm -hmm. to kind of bring you into that world it's just there's no other real biopic like it that kind of kind of right. backdoors in this historical historical context through this really complicated and conflicted character. 
know, and, and seeing like it's like told from the villain's perspective. Brilliant choice to to take that that approach to it, and I think it paid off. Yeah, and I think a lot of what we're talking about. I mean, like what I was alluding to earlier is it's a lot of black writers, black filmmakers are just trying to, like, I mean, they're reclaiming their their stories, their their history, and portraying it in the light that you know, like this is how this is how we saw it, you know, and here check this out you know i mean it's uh it's fascinating i think we're gonna see a lot more films like this um and uh it's just you know it's it, i think it's a great time for filmmaking for for people of all all well, colors <laughs> well we are running a little late on time so let's ask one of the last question even though uh so what did you guys well i always like to uh talk about the ending or whatever so what did you guys think about the ending uh, i didn't know the story coming into this so i was a little bit shocked but talking about uh, amazing face acting and stuff bill o'neill's character when he's sort of like presented with what he has to do and when he actually does it was really really sort of just gut-wrenching or whatever but like did you know the story going into this did you know what was going to happen did you know like how it was all going to go down what did you think about the ending and did it like sort of Sat, I shouldn't say satisfy you because it's a real story. It's not like they contrived it. What do you think, Kibbles? Uh, you know, I knew I knew where it was going, um, but I, you know, someone I did not know anything about was Deborah Johnson, who, um, you know, his. I guess they were never married, but the uh, the mother partner. And uh, I think I think another masterstroke of this movie is telling you telling a lot of it from her perspective and giving the human side of, of Fred Hampton through her. Uh, and, and specifically uh, with the ending, um, you know, I think, I think the harrowing part of it is just kind of, you know, as violent as it is, you kind of see it through her eyes and you're, you know, the shot when he gets, you don't see Fred Hampton being shot. You are watching her face as she's listening to it. Yeah. And I think that, uh, I think it was a good choice and I think it, you know, I think it, it was a good reminder, and I think this movie needed it, that, you know, for as ideological as the Black Panthers are, and, and as much of a, a firebrand and an icon that Fred Hampton was, you know, this is, this is a person who loved him and wanted him to raise her child, and uh, I think it adds another level of emotional nuance to this movie, um, and I think, it, I think it's a big reason it worked. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know to uh, exactly like I made, I knew who Fred Hampton was and I, I knew kind of where it was going. I didn't know that I made it a point not to look up the details beforehand. Um, but, but you know, the, it was such a good job illusions like her, you know, Deborah Johnson's whole struggle to do, I want to bring up a child in this environment, you know, like in, when, if my, if we are so devoted to the cause that we're going to lay down our lives, is it fair to me to bring a child in that? And like, that was so real and yeah like the way they portrayed that was because it in in like and seeing uh fred you know fred thompson kind of struggling for him sorry kind of struggling with that as well struggling with that as well i mean and you just felt it man yeah and and like and that and the way they did that scene at the the rally it was so intense and like they just not share not shying away just showing women getting shot was you know you know i just didn't i didn't expect it to be that i mean i knew it was going but i was like i don't they surely they're like not going to show that woman who couldn't could barely stand up because her legs had been shot right like that was 
Wow. Yeah, what do you think was, about so like the, the religious references? Because he, they obviously talk about how he's Judas in the title. Mm-hmm. And Judas was obviously the, the, he gave a kiss to Christ before to like signify the cops to come and, you know, take Christ mm-hmm. to be arrested before he was crucified or whatever. And that sort of scene where he's about to give him that, that drink is almost that like that signifier that he's about to leave and let the cops come in and do their work or whatever. Uh, I mean, but like, did, <laughs> I mean, did, did you notice any other sort of religious, uh, you know, references Motif. or allusions to some of that stuff, it being a Messiah, uh, obviously the Judas references too. Like, did, did anyone else pick up on any, some of that stuff? Or I, I guess it was in the back of my head. It really only hit me at the end. Gosh, no. I mean, yeah, now that I think about it, I mean, this is definitely a movie I want to watch again, but I bet there was a lot, a lot of references throughout that maybe we didn't notice, but I don't know. And I also, I also kind of wanted to look up how many of the quotes because this is a very quotable film, I think, at times, as far as like a lot of things Fred Hampton was saying, is like how much of that was were were like straight from speeches, straight, which I imagine were a lot were. And I know that you know the speech after he gets out of jail, I think, is pretty much spot on. Spot on, yeah. Um, which that's the scene of the movie for me. Um, but uh, I th- yeah. I thought it was fascinating. Sorry, when you were talking about Deborah Johnson, like in, I think it's in that church, uh, which again, I guess there's one little religious reference for sure, but uh, that church rally scene where Fred Hampton is, yeah, I guess, is that right after he gets out of jail? Yeah, it's the first, it's his first speech. It's his welcome home, Fred. And this is, yeah. And this is after uh, Jake or Jimmy has, has perished, right? It's, so Jimmy is perished. Jay, it's before Jake murders the cop, but it's, yeah, yeah. and it's after that. It's and it's when he uh, says, "Okay." It's when he says, "You know, kill them, all, kill them all, get complete satisfaction." Uh, and don't we see like? Doesn't it zoom in on her face where like you can yeah. almost see like she's kind of going through? Where he says he's gonna die. He's gonna die for the people, and she's right. Like, she's like, "I have a your child in my stomach right now." Right, and that's. I mean, that just. Every second of that scene, that I've watched it twice now. That's that's really the scene worth rewatching because every between Stanfield, Plemons, uh, Dominique Fishback plays Deborah Johnson, and yeah, Kaluuya, it's just oh you yeah, know, you know when that Stanfield and Clement like stare at each other through the crowd, and he's like, and then like JP's pumping his fist. Yeah, uh, I, one of the JP. That's obviously the, the the you know I think it's gonna be remembered for the for a performance but i think one of the more underrated performance scenes in this movie was the scene with uh with fred hampton and jimmy palmer's mother yes uh that scene got me i was like that right there is worth the oscar yeah when she doesn't really know what to talk about you know and he's trying to bring it up and she's like no let's talk (laughs) about something else and 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 just yeah that idea and i think that you know in a meta way you can you can kind of compare it to what we've been saying about the Black Panthers and their like, you know, because her whole point is, I don't want my son to be remembered. We lost you, Fritzy. Um, what's that? I think we lost lost you. Maybe it's just me. I think it's just you, Budge. Oh, yeah. Oh, we'll oh sorry. Well, uh, so I was just saying that, you know, his, you know, Jake Winter's mom makes the point that, you know, she didn't want her son to be remembered as a murderer. And I think you <laughs> equate that to Black Panthers and the Black Panthers, um, you know, sons and daughters and the, the people mm-hmm. that are running the new Black Panther Party, they don't want to just be known as militant, you know. Right. You know, they, 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 they certainly 
you know, had guns and, you know, got into violent clashes, but that's not all they were. And I think that's what made that, that scene so powerful to me. Yeah. She was like, make my son's legacy right. Well, you, <laughs> like, you know what, what else was obviously really powerful and I'm sorry to jump to something else, but that the ending, the very end where they sort of cut to the real life interview of Bill yes. O'Neill and sort of he, they said, how do you want to be remembered? Yes. And so we're just, that's sort of a segue to what you were talking about. But you can tell that he sort of is still racked with guilt over sort of leading to someone's death like this. And then he goes and it says that he goes and commits suicide sort of when that in the night that interview aired on national TV, which again makes him more of a Judas as well because Judas killed himself in guilt of turning in Christ, which is sort of crazy as well. So, uh, yeah. but that's- That, that was a very deflating moment yeah, there. I, I, wanna, I wanna point this out to just Matthew, just to piggy, cause you brought it up, but one of the, I, I thought was just so seamless and I don't think I've ever seen it this seamless is how they went from actual footage to the, to the performers. Yes. Like particularly with the Bill O'Neill interview, they're starting out and it's actually the interview with him. And then it turns into um, his actor. No, the beginning yeah. that is but, later. But, yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. It starts out with the actual Bill O'Neill being interviewed and then it slowly changes and then they do it the same way at the end right where it starts out where it turns to the real bill o'neill maybe i didn't notice that but I, Whoa. I, right? yeah but it's seamless but I, i'm I, saying I mean, it was such a good job you're right and i know yeah. they the real bill O'Neill. that's crazy yeah because i saw it as the beginning that it was like and then at the end it was the real bill o'neill you're saying that it I got to rewatch it, but I have written down. I was like, how they transition from actual footage to normal is shocking. See, yeah. it just, just like, cause you, good makeup. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, Are we yeah. doing a rating on makeup? Oh, well, I mean, editing techniques. Yeah. No, I don't know. <laughs> I'll but say yeah. this part too, though, cause we're talking about like, that's one of the things my girlfriend pointed out watching it was that like, what, cause we reviewed the nice guys on this podcast, but like how it, she, she kind of pointed out, she's like, this is how people probably actually dressed in the seventies. Like instead of like the nice guys where it was like over the top, like yeah. you see it's a cartoonish version of the way like wardrobe, that this was like, not subdued i guess a subdued more subdued which, which is probably more real anyway i just like thought a that was faded like, baby blue yeah, suit yeah. kind of thing you act like it looks pretty cool all right well any final thoughts any last things you want to add before we sort of move on move on to the wheel questions <sighs> real quick we'll do like one or two and then we'll yeah just let's, get the to let's get to it get to it all right so the wheel questions we have number one Give me more history. Number two, make it sexier. We always like to ask that one. Number three, stitches get snitches get stitches. Four, free breakfast. Five, would you take it? Six, hot wire on demand. Seven, whammy. Eight, big guns. Nine, the bitch is back. Ten, respin. So we'll do about two of these. The Elton John reference there, then? Yeah. All right. Number one, actually. So give me more history. So this movie, we kind of already touched on this. So this movie was based on a lesser known historical figure that none of us really grew up knowing about. Who's a small or big historical figure you would like to see have a biopic on the next? Budge, I know you're a big history buff. I know. Give me, give me, go, go, let me go back around. I, uh... What do you think, Fritz or Kibbles? Whatever we want to say. <laughs> uh, you know, because it's a, uh... I'm just giving away my identity at this point, but uh, I'm a I'm a UVA guy, I'm a UVA grad, um, and there's this uh, there's this little complicated figure by the name of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, that, TJ. that uh, hasn't really been uh, properly assessed, maybe in uh, in media like he should. Uh, a very important and great, and also not so great guy. So I'd be down for a for a good Thomas Jefferson biopic. 
that would be awesome i mean there's also sort of like the the kubrick movie about napoleon that never actually got made mm-hmm. that they're trying to actually reboot reboot now which i hope i hope actually does get made because it's supposed to be really dope and really awesome uh what do you think preston well i'm gonna go musical here i don't know why this just popped in my head uh i would like to see like a i guess yeah because it was a uh anniversary of i think would have been his 70th either 70th or 75th birthday but a biopic on bob marley and like his role not only as a musician but as like an ambassador of jamaica and like his music and even i mean you could talk about peter tosh i just think there's so much history there that like it's not as roses or beautiful maybe as as people would think when they're like oh bob marley music yeah it makes me feel good I think there's a lot more to it. And I think that would be a really interesting story to tell that uh, outside of documentaries, I don't so, think there's really been a movie about it. And the so, last, the last like credit says how much money the Bob Marley estate has made for college kids buying the poster. Posters. <laughs> <laughs> like side note, the uh, soccer poster. Has <laughs> a million times. Kind of speaking of musicians and lesser known historical figures. I, I this is one where I, I've, I've wanted to do a little more research on because I've I've read a little bit about him. I think he's kind of a fascinating figure. But Stuart Copeland's father from the pool, the drummer for the police and yeah. the Oyster Head was a CIA agent from Birmingham during like the post-war years in the Middle East and participated in several like coups and schemes and scams. And he's huh. just a fascinating figure that's like if you know like CIA and like stuff, you know, scholars will know who he is, but like I think you could just do a really cool movie about him because he's would like they, would they middle the class credits? Alabama and then like worked his way up to the CIA. Uh, would they plug another podcast, but have you all listened to the winds of change? Uh started it. Start same here, started it. I need to get back to it. Yes. Yeah. And um, so and so briefly, that's about it. I, I mm-hmm. think Scorpions was the band um mm-hmm. that wrote this song, The Winds of Change, that is um credited by some with helping end the Cold mm-hmm. War. And there is a conspiracy <laughs> that the CIA either wrote the song or played a big role in getting it produced. That's so wild. Wait, what the Did, hell? Wait, what? yeah. Yes. Yeah. Propagate like it's a psyop by the by the CIA. So wait, wait, but I just think how would that even work? I mean, like when you say it's credited for ending the Cold War, I've never even like thought about. But like, did a bunch of was it targeted towards like Russians or was it targeted towards like Americans? What 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 was it? You've loved it and it like inspired them to really push for democracy. Yes. Huh. That is crazy. All right, so we're gonna roll one more time and then we'll get into the ratings here. All right. Number three, snitches get stitches. So Bill, for the most part, effortlessly works his way into the good graces of the Black Panther Party. If you had to be an informant, what type of organization do you think you could sort of weasel your way into? Go ahead, Pudge. Um, it's, it's probably some political splinter cell group, like some <laughs> extremist group of, you know, insert it could be right wing left wing but yeah you know i could sell myself either way oh yeah you, you know all the lingo you could definitely mm-hmm. put in what do you think preston <laughs> oh man I, god <laughs> I, I, I like what what bunch just said there but i don't <laughs> want to say the same thing um oh man i'm, I'm again thinking musically here <laughs> well, yeah you, think let, you got one yeah you got one go, go to kibbles here yeah, I mean, I'm I'd, I'd be a terrible uh, rat. First of all, I've got I've got a terrible poker face. Uh, <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big sports fan. I'm a big NBA guy. So maybe I could, uh, maybe I could fake as an intern for uh, the hated, uh, you know, Memphis Grizzlies or something. And, and <laughs> a intel and send it back to, uh, to my beloved New Orleans Pelicans. But, oh, you could like do something for the mob in terms of like illegal sports betting and stuff like that, break into that sort of territory. What do you think, Preston? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to go with a respan. I'm gonna say I think I think Preston could go. He might like go undercover working at the Alabama University of Alabama Athletics Department in an effort to like. <laughs> oh God, I don't know. I mean, maybe it depends. Like, if there was some really good stuff, I could probably get into it. I, that, I would. To- that would, I would be totally- really hard. I mean, I was thinking about just because watching sort of those scenes, like that, like really, really intense scene where they're trying to like make Bill prove that he's like not a snitch, like because they like go through his story about how he was like what robbing or stealing that car or whatever, and he had to sort of hotwire it, whatever. And I was just thinking about like like it was like making my heart race if I was in that actual situation. I just I would lose it and probably just like duck roll out of the car and run away. Electrocute yourself. Yeah. Cool, his move of uh, you know like whenever when the office got ransacked, he freaked out and was like, "There's a rat here." <laughs> people off your set he like yeah deflect 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 oh total whataboutism he's like i'm not a rat you're yeah like basically yeah, calling yeah, attention to the rat uh, that scene yeah we didn't talk about that scene was awesome and he, when he's like backing out in the car he's like smiling yeah, yeah. yeah. his facial expressions throughout the movie it's like so jacked about it <laughs> i tell you one i would not go into uh is uh i would not be cost again and the de- departed trying to infiltrate jack nicholson's little crew Oh, yeah, I, I feel like anything drug related, I could probably do the lingo, but like when it got down to sort of like weird violence and stuff, I'd be like, I would, I, I don't think I could ever, ever last in that sort of situation. Um, all right, so let's go to the rating the film we like to do. Out whoa, of whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we always get one last little spin in here. And we oh, know we're, we're trying land. to like, we're trying to like conserve let's time. Here. I think we're, we're running up an hour and 30. But right I feel now. like we have to at least ask the guest. Oh, okay. So we always like to ask, how would you make the movie sexier this is a very unsexy <laughs> movie and i like almost regretted even writing that down but fritz if you had to make judas and the black messiah just a little bit sexier put a little eye candy in there how would you do it kibbles i hate this question first of all. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we put you on the spot <laughs> man um you know that the obvious answer is just more of you know just kind of spicing up the stuff with that with Fred Hampton and Deborah Johnson, but um, maybe That's the not, answer, yeah. I, would, I would maybe add a you know, you know Stanfield's uh, Bill O'Neill's flirting with that girl. Yeah, maybe maybe make that a you know a raunchy little side plot. You know? <laughs> but, uh, other than that, I yeah, I, uh, I the only a great movie to uh, yeah. <laughs> really Agreed. The only thing that comes you didn't to want mind a Jesse Plemons sex scene just going out. Oh, God. <laughs> like, I would like, absolutely pay to watch that. <laughs> with Kirsten Dunst from Fargo. Well, that is that's all that, that funny yeah. thing in Fargo that season two of Fargo when he like strips down to his tidy whities and throws him into the fire to burn his clothes or whatever. It's kind of a funny scene. Um, um, but I oh, think the, the only show. I was thinking to myself though the only other way you could like make this sexier is like show the crowns right that i'm assuming they were like running prostitutes as well like having some like crazy sex party when they went to talk to him or something but that's really the only thing that comes to mind did the crowns do that i mean the crowns were not real i looked this up yeah but i mean but like they were just yeah there was, there was another that's a group, gang though. 
the crowds were like a an amalgam of like three or four different. So like he, he was going around sort of unifying all these mm -hmm. different people to fight yeah. for the same cause instead of the like showing them. Yeah, instead of showing yeah, them do it with four or five different people, they just made it one big one. Yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't know how to make it sexier. They, they did mention something about like like I was just talking about the car the car stealing scene or whatever when they were confronting him. He said he stole it from a pimp. But so obviously pimps do exist in this universe. So maybe there could have been some pimping scenes. I don't know. Uh, and I, I guess sort of the, the weird cop at the end that gives him the drug is sort of dressed like a pimp. Which sort of I was, was going to say, just follow him around for a day. You probably get some, get some interesting scenes out of that. Oh, that, the guy from Get Out? Yeah, well, Warrell, how, how are we? But yeah, I, I do think- so I, funny. I do think- uh, Kibbles was right though. Like, given Bill uh, a sort of a love interest would have made his character even more interesting. But I don't know if there was time for it or whatever. But him sort of balancing that sort because of, that's what The Departed is kind of kind of about sort of balancing real life versus being an informant at the same time. And we didn't really maybe get that as much with him. He was always sort of informant, and so like we kind of didn't really get sort of his actual life outside of the Black Panther. But then again, maybe people didn't really have a life outside of the organization. So let's move on to the ratings here. Let's do this real quick. We're going to do uh, characters, music, plot, and acting. We're going to start off with acting. Preston, out of 25, what do you think? Uh, I mean, this is very well acted. I'm, I'm going to go, uh, you know, it's like, how do I not go 25 here? I, th I think Daniel Kaluuya, 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 I think he will be up for. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it'd be like best actor or supporting actor. They're put. They're camping him as supporting, is my understanding. Huh. And I guess that would be the same. I mean, there isn't really a bet like just one main actor. So I don't know if they'd have anybody up for that necessarily. I mean, maybe Lakeith, but yeah. I well, anyway, I think he will certainly be up for something. I mean, he's just he's one of the best actors around these days, and I. You know, I think a lot of people forget he's British. And so to be able to like channel, you know, this guy, Fred Hampton and these speeches, like, you know, a lot of work went into that from like enunciation to uh, tonation to, I mean, to so much. And I think he just, I mean, he, at, there, he was so captivating. I mean, there are times where I was sitting oh, there like dude. listening and like, I, I was like, I'm a revolutionary. <laughs> he definitely uh, creates I mean, an orders like rhythm in terms of how he delivers that stuff it definitely was something yeah. you worked on that's great right and then everyone else is so good i mean i, I, I yeah i'm gonna give it a 25 it's just, what, just a all-around great acting what do you think budge oh Any man spots it, in the acting no that that was the uh that was some of the finest acting i've seen in in, in film uh i think like president said the the speeches were just top notch but uh, I even thought Martin Sheen, he might have looked a little goofy on the prosthetics, but <laughs> I was Jay Edgar Hoover. But uh, I'm going to give it a 25. It was him. <laughs> I know, what a transformation. I did not realize mm -hmm. it was Martin Sheen. <laughs> this is getting to make up 25 for sure. But, yeah. <laughs> what do you uh, think, yeah, Gibbles? Yeah, so I, it's, a, it's a 25 for me, too. Um, I've gone back and forth uh, as to who, between Kaluuya and Stanfield, I thought was better, but they're both excellent. Movie doesn't work, or at least it's not as good if you're not buying what Kaluuya is selling every time he is speaking, every time he is mm -hmm. you know, he's orating. Um, it's just, it's incredible how compelling he is. Mm -hmm. uh, Stanfield, he might be, he's up there. He might be my favorite working actor right now. I think he can just do so many different things. Yeah, he's great. Uh, Jesse Plemons, our, uh, you know, Matt Damon himself. Our, Dick uh, boy. Our plump king. 
uh, is killing it. And, you know, every from Dominique Fifbeck on down, I don't, I don't think there was a bad performance. She was great. Yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was pretty perfect. Usually in most movies, you can have like one sort of cringy moment where you think some of the dialogue could have just, or like how they deliver yeah. it sort of like takes you out of the moment. I really didn't feel that at all. Maybe there, there was sort of that like at the very end when he does sort of like deliver that line when he's like trying to ask him for another drink. And he like, is, I don't know that, that maybe it's just because I knew it was going to happen. I was almost expecting that. That's the only thing that I kind of like shook my head. Maybe they could have done something yeah. like that, but I thought, no, overall still 25. I, 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 lo- I loved it. So let's uh, move on to the plot. what do you think? Uh, hard to really rate a plot that's based on a true story, but what do you think Preston plot wise? I agree. And I kind of like what we were talking about earlier. I mean, like this is some history that we just weren't uh, taught or we didn't know much about and, or if we did, like it was told to us probably more from like a white perspective or, or, or just some, you know, some perspective that wasn't like what we got for this movie. And I think uh, just learning and like being a part, like, like, like you were saying, Kibble is like feeling like just dropped in this, this time and place. And it was so like, it was just, I mean, everything, like every scene was pretty palpable um just i think you have to that lends itself just to good writing and good uh like putting the story together in a way that was really um powerful and so it's uh, like acting like i i really don't know where to knock this movie and and it's weird that i would even like well i'm trying to knock it off a few points (laughs) because i don't want to give it a perfect score but i mean like uh i think if if there's ever anything like anything i can find like issues with i guess it'd be plot because you can find holes here and there there just really weren't that many uh, based on what I know. Um, so, you know, I'm just going to give it a 24. <laughs> I'm not going to give it a perfect 25, but like, you know, it was awesome. I was, I was, I was captivated throughout. what do you think, Budge? Story-wise. Uh, oh, I thought it was excellent. I gave it a 23. Um, I think that there were maybe some things that could have been cut and maybe I'd like a little bit more, additions but it was so minuscule i feel like i'd be splitting hairs to even bring it up like maybe i want a little bit more on like will you you know bill o'neill's like what what like the plot showed me the lead up to him going to steal the car yeah like to go into the scene like but that's so like such minutia i feel bad but like yeah so at 23 i only knock it two points what do you think kibbles yeah it's 24 for me uh, i don't have too much to add i just and I've said this before, just what an insane inspired decision to tell this story from uh, the perspective of a rat from the guy who brought Fred Hampton down and this this weird, conflicted, all over the map Bill O'Neill character. Uh, and I think, I think it gives, you know, it, it breathes the life into the story and it, it brings it to a new level. Um, yeah, kind of like Budge, my only complaints would be, you know, nitpicky, some scenes going on a little too long or, or not everything quite clicking, but 24 for me. Yeah. And I, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head here. Like saying that they, when you do do a biopic, you do have to at least make the choice of how you're going to tell the story and where you're going to start it and what you're going to include and what you're going to leave out. And doing the story from Bill O'Neill's perspective was, I think, absolutely the right choice. And starting the movie from when he gets involved, because if you're doing a Fred Hampton biopic, you could start him as a kid and sort of like see how he grew up to have these ideas of blah, blah, blah. We didn't need that. We started right when sort of the action started. And I think we got enough. I think it was the perfect choice. Like it didn't like do his childhood and how he grew up and went to school like they could have easily done some maybe some boring stuff like that but i think you started right in the middle 
or start at the end, I guess, excuse me. And then just, yeah, perfect choice. I'm, I'm going to give it a 24. I don't really have anything that I could knock it, but it, there's still some, maybe some little things I didn't like, but uh, all right. So let's move on to the uh, music. Preston, what do you think about music? Um, well, a real cool tidbit, uh, Shaka, Shaka Khan, geez, <laughs> Shaka King, uh, he tapped his uncle, uh, to do, to like compose a film score. And his uncle is a, like a Harlem jazz mu uh, musician. And obviously like the score throughout, I mean, there, there are moments, um, I thought I, I, one of my favorite parts was when the crowns and the black party, like their first time they met, I think it was the first time and they're kind of like sizing each other up. I, I, some, anyway, like the entire music, it's, it's like pretty much like an upright bass. And then after a little bit, like a little hi-hat comes in and it's, I mean, it's just like really tasteful and like sets the tone and it fits like every bit of that scene um, in a really cool way. And then, yeah, throughout, I mean, like I, I thought the music was excellent. I know the soundtrack has a, some, like a, like a, like some actual like tracks of music. I think by, uh, I don't know if you say her or H E R she played the guitar, uh, at the Super Bowl. but anyway, they've got, uh, they've got other songs that were, that are for the film that were not necessarily in the film, but, um, I thought it was really cool. I'm going to give it 24. What do you think, Fudge? Oh yeah. I thought the music was excellent. I, I gave it a, I gave it a full, full bars, 25. Um, I, yeah, like we said, I thought that that jazz was just nice and funky. I really, really thought it was awesome when he like came like when he went into the when he went to steal the car or i guess when he went to like kind of shake down the crowns or whatever uh there was like this funky little jazz beat that i just it, i still i'm like kind of playing in my head what'd you think kibbles uh 23 for me um i think i nailed it that i think it was keep on pushing by the impressions was the song that played um when Fred hampton went to go confront the crowns for the first time i thought that was great mm -hmm. uh, but the discordant jazz was great. And then, you know, I'm a sucker for, you know, just kind of the, you know, simple drum sounds during the, uh, during the action sequences, you know, yeah. just kind of the sparseness of it during uh, the shootout between the police and the Black Panthers. You know, I, I think, I think there was a lot of restraint in this soundtrack and I, uh, I think that was the right call. So real quick, there is this little, uh, we might be talking about two different scenes, but on the, on the soundtrack track listening, and it, it is it's his uncle Mark Isham, but they they call this title uh, "Crowns Creeping," and it just makes me think of that like scene where they're all kind of like <laughs> looking at each other. Oh, no, I think we're talking about two different things. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because there were two big scenes with with Black right. Panther and the in the crowns. Right. Yeah, no, I, I thought this that that music nailed it, and it, it's sort of like uh, I think Ryan Coogler was the executive producer of this, and so he did Black yeah. Panther the actual Black Panther movie, not about the organization, the Black Panther, which oddly enough has Daniel Kouye, whatever his last name, I can't say pronounce it, but he's in that movie. So it's kind of two Black Panthers in, in one career, two massive movies. But uh, yeah, but he, I, I think he nails the music. I don't know how much influence he had, but I mean, the Black Panther soundtrack was so great. And this, this one, I mean, just every single moment, I, I feel like it, it hit the right resonance in terms of, I don't even know if I'm using that word correctly, but like in terms of the emotional, like, hits and blows and sort of like i thought it was so, so yeah good. i can't even remember specific i can't remember specific songs but i just remember watching the watching the movie and listening and sort of being like okay it really feels 
it just felt perfect. So I'm going to give it a 24. Yeah. Uh, we're going to move on. Last last bit before we hang it up, we're going to do what, 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 what plot action uh, characters. characters. So what, again, yeah. we did plot. It's a real story. Characters, real stories. But so just try to judge characters. How well were they developed? How well do, were they depicted? Is <laughs> <As> excellently. <laughs> I mean, like again, it's it's. You know, there there are times like in certain movies, if, especially if it's not like a based on a true story, where you can have a little difference in like the actual the acting and like the characters. Like the acting can be really done, and the characters are, are stupid or something. You know, yeah. like here, uh, it's it's just. I mean, the story in itself is fascinating. I mean, from O'Neill to Fred Hampton, you know, you've got uh, a very young informant. And you've got this young revolutionary in, in Chicago in a very turbulent time for politics in the 60s and a lot of countercultural movements. So, I mean, like everyone is kind of playing their part uh, really well. And I think it all works together. Um, so, like, characters at 24. What do you think, Bud? Good stuff. I think that I gave it a, uh, I gave it a 23. It's, 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 it's really good in, in my, and I brought up kind of where I wanted to see a little more development, maybe out of Jesse Plemons' character, just to kind of let me understand his uh, his character arc. Um, but again, that that's so minuscule um, that it's it doesn't take away from the movie that much because I don't think the movie's really about him. But yeah, so two three, Michael Jordan. Yeah, what do you think, Kevels? Uh, twenty three, same as Budge, kind of same uh, slight nitpick with some of the uh, some of the FBI uh, portrayals. But it's not to say like I, I didn't think they should be portrayed more sympathetically. I just thought, um, you know, they, they weren't as fleshed out as um, you know as the Black Panthers. But you know, as we've talked about, this isn't this isn't a movie about the FBI. It's about it's a movie about the Black Panthers and about this guy who kind of got thrust into their world. Um, so it's twenty three for me. Characters are. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the cops, all the cops, not even just the FBI, but like sort of the street level cops too, were all very flat. And Jesse Plemons, you kind of, I, I feel like the stuff we talked about earlier in terms of you almost felt like he was having sort of sympathies for him, but then he just sort of went back to it in terms of he was along for the ending. Um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I kind of wish there was a little bit more Bill O'Neill backstory just in terms of like his life of crime before he became an informant, whatever, mm-hmm. maybe. But then again, like I just gave it high marks in terms of for starting right at the beginning. Yeah, like I agree because I was I was like really confused at the very yeah. beginning. Like yeah. what like what was the, okay? Why you know I, I get it where we're going, but like I'd like to know why he did that first of all. Yeah. Why he why he faked like, being a FBI agent? Or? Yeah, like and like what made him go into that bar? Because we learned that's sure. like the Crown's bar. It couldn't. Have, it was like the worst place he could possibly go. My read on it was that he just saw the car. And yeah. Because oh, okay. he hears in and he's like, "Oh shit, Crown's." So I think mm-hmm. he saw the car and then went through it anyway. But yeah, remember he was very young. <laughs> he was very young. Yeah, so I, 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 I'll give it a twenty-two just because, like I said, I, I do think you sort of just to kick start the story a little bit, maybe need a little bit more to how he got involved. But then again, you don't want to waste time on it. It was already long enough. So no, I, yeah, I, like, I, don't I don't think anybody's being new being that nitpicky, but that's, you know. All right. So that's going to wrap it up. That's going to be our review for the Judas and the Black Messiah. We're going to really, we thank Mr. Kibbles for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. <laughs> you can find him on Twitter at Kibbles and Fritz. Kibbles and Fritz. Scorching hot UVA basketball. It's, I mean, you're talking to two people who kind of really have a bad grudge against UVA basketball. Me and Preston yeah. both hate it. 
because uh, uh, we're huge Auburn fans. <laughs> we're gonna have to get your thoughts on uh, on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, and, uh, okay. we're gonna have to get your thoughts on double dribbling off the That's record. A, yeah, Pre- Preston texted me on the side and said, "Can we get some thoughts on double dribble?" Uh, I wanted to surprise you with it. Oh, so uh, this is uh, sort of weird. So, like at that moment, Fritz was in complete euphoria and me and Preston were in complete agony yeah <laughs> complete agony that was just so heartbreaking I, I I can't believe that I still I try not to relive it it's like one of those things that seems so stupid and small but like it's one of those things where I refuse to re-watch the highlights of that game and refuse to re like I just don't want I kind of want to erase from my memory yeah, you know Matthew I would feel bad for you if we hadn't lost to a 16 seed the year <laughs> Sharpie. Well, I promise yeah. <laughs> Seth Davis is such a tool. All right, so that's going to any last any last final thoughts before we close it out. Budge, Preston, Fritz, one last parting word before we hit that sweet outro music. You Great know, I, I think this was a very powerful film. Uh, I recommend you go see it. I, th- I don't think I've seen anything that kind of moved me like this since maybe like Selma. Um, but I, I'm like kind of like with Preston. I'll, I think we should reiterate: there are a lot of people who think this movie is going to be one way, and it really isn't. So don't put it back so far. Yeah. yeah.